Hi, and welcome to Filmmaker's Compass Podcast, a show where we talk about movies and more movies. I'm D-Man, joined by CP. We have another great episode in store for you guys. We're still talking Halloween, so I know that doesn't end yet. We got probably another week where we're going to talk a little holiday vibes. I will throw it over to you, CP. I know you have some shout-outs right out of the gate. Yes, sir. It is good to be back. First of all, I got to give a shout-out to our friend Danielle, who got married this past weekend, to her fiancé, Sean. Congratulations to the two of you. We love you very much. Hey, congratulations, Danielle. Hope you had an awesome, awesome weekend and are enjoying your honeymoon. Yeah, Um, have fun. I got to give a shout out to Mr. Adam Jones. Thank you for commenting on the fact that I'm getting older. I still seem to be looking younger than before. Maybe I'm just up to some Sanderson sisters type voodoo. You'll never know. (laughs) I got to give one shout out to uh, Ryan Weinzettel. This has nothing to do with movies or even his response to the show. He was brave enough to text me during the Notre Dame game this weekend. I just want to say thank you because (laughs) nobody out here said anything nice to me at all. If you don't know, I'm in LA, but I'm from South Bend. Everybody out here was texting me very mean things and (laughs) and gifts and memes. Ryan, thank you for going through that awful game with me on my side. (laughs) Appreciate that, man. If you are paying attention to the world at all, you know that Rings of Power has finally wrapped. We've been talking about it for, well, pretty much since it premiered so far. We're actually going to postpone that conversation for another week to just give everybody a chance to make sure that they are caught up on the show. And we want to forewarn you that next week we're going to be dropping some spoilers as we talk about Rings of Power, what we know about Lord of the Rings and what we're expecting in season two. You got to wait another week. I am excited for that conversation too, just because of the criticism that the show received out of the gate, particularly from Tolkien fandom, which we did have a conversation about that at the halfway point. I am interested in your thoughts, CP, which we have not discussed yet, and we will do a little pre-production on it, but we're going to save the conversation even between ourselves for next week's episode and I'm excited to get your thoughts on how it all kind of came together in the end there were some things that we had talked about potentially happening that maybe happened things that didn't happen there were surprise reveals and all kinds of stuff we'll get into that I'm excited for that conversation so I hope you guys will join us and if you haven't checked out Rings of Power be sure to uh, give it a shot come check out the conversation if you're not a LOTR or Tolkien nerd then uh, just join us for uh, the zeitgeist (laughs) we're a part of the big conversation going online so join us for that throw it over to you what are we starting with today well actually i want to throw it right back to you i know you just finished watching one of the most (laughs) anticipated and exciting shows on television right now she hulk you are are correct you did not probably get you you kind of got a sigh i don't think you got the reaction you wanted from me man (laughs) you're right i did watch she hulk now i got before we get dive into this conversation let's preface it with like disney star wars are you watching marvel disney plus shows are you up to date on she hulk and everything Uh... marvel No, I did not watch She-Hulk. I have no intentions of watching She-Hulk. I have not watched most of the Disney Marvel series, and um, I'm not really planning on watching any of them going forward. Ah, Interesting. I mean, I'm not going to probably persuade you to watch them after this conversation. (laughs) Let's start with She-Hulk. I did watch the entirety of the show. My wife, Steph, and I watched it essentially as it came out. You know, occasionally we watch two episodes at once or whatever, but as it released... And it's an interesting concept. The concept of She-Hulk is attorney at law, which basically is we're going to have an attorney in the MCU and that's She-Hulk representing superheroes and villains within that world. And it's kind of an interesting concept because it takes on the form similar to maybe say like a 
kind of like a sitcom. It's very lighthearted. It's not particularly serious in terms of its villains or really pushing the overall MCU mm. narrative. But more, I could... more twerking than most MCU installments, huh? Yeah, there's two elements from the show, though, that I think what they were going for was admirable. But I don't know if they actually pulled off either of them. That is by, first of all, making the show about a courtroom. It allows actually characters from all over the MCU to actually appear in this show to kind of come and go, right? You know, there's mention even of the Sokovia Accords and all this different stuff. So the show itself could kind of be like an interesting middle ground between the other shows and the movies where these characters kind of connect, right? In yeah. interesting ways, but it's it's a lighthearted, fun show. So you can kind of actually have fun with the appearances of the characters. I feel like they try to do that again, just like almost everything they're doing. They tried and it did not quite work. <laughs> the second thing they're doing that I think was admirable was they're breaking the fourth wall. There is kind of an acknowledgement that this is a show that mm -hmm. we're all kind of being a little self-aware here, right? Self-referential to the MCU and some of the stuff. So there's this kind of notion that it can also be a conduit for those type of conversations with fandom mm -hmm. that you can poke a little fun and do some of that stuff. Here's where I don't think it works either way. First of all, as a courtroom drama, and this is reported on, apparently they did not hire any writers with courtroom drama experience. That so the, seems like a mistake. <laughs> yeah, the courtroom <laughs> drama aspect of the show is not remotely compelling. It almost feels like this happens and this happens and this happens. Mm -hmm. Why all that happens? Because we need another episode of the show. Gotcha. So they weren't able to integrate the things going on in the MCU with a courtroom drama that created compelling TV. Thought that was a bit of a bummer. I thought it was kind of a cool opportunity because, I mean, let's face it, courtroom dramas are a staple of just television, right? What is that, the big three for uh, television genres? Hospitals, cops, and courtrooms? Yeah, I mean, think about it. Dick Wolf made an entire career out of courtroom dramas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Law & Order's been going for how long? People still watch it. So the fact that they weren't able to capture that sort of magic from a genre that is typically played really well in this medium was a bit of a bummer. The second aspect, so the whole finale, and this is going to be a spoiler now. We're getting into spoiler territory spoiler. because I can't, can't talk about She-Hulk without acknowledging the finale. And what happens is, is essentially the show positions the villain of the show as toxic fandom and what happens is in the finale they break the fourth wall and She-Hulk literally looks at the camera and is like do you like this ending? Me neither. And she ends up going over to Marvel Studios to go find Kevin Feige and essentially rewrite the ending of the show. The, I get the idea there. I'm sure someone thought they had a super witty idea in a writer's room and they're like oh Hulk smashes things. Have her smash the fourth wall. And I, yeah, I yeah. think there's even a quote in there. Sure that came from somebody's brilliant idea. Not that I don't think that actually couldn't work. I just don't think She-Hulk quite pulled it off the way they were intending. They end up doing this, but the problem is by doing that, it's almost self-referential to the fact she's like rewriting the ending, right? Why? Because it sucked. <laughs> like, the irony is if you were even into the show remotely at all, let's say you're actually enjoying the show, which it, to its credit, the second to last episode, they introduced the character of Daredevil. I thought it was one of their better episodes. It felt like it was building to something with intelligentsia, like they were going to do something. 
Yeah. They basically are like, yeah, forget all that. It was garbage. Mm. So it's weird because in a weird way, they're almost trashing their own show. And you as a fan, consequently, if you were actually enjoying that show, to me, it didn't work in the way I think they were intending it to. Like it's tongue in cheek. Like there's references to, oh, when are we going to get the X-Men? And she's talking to Kevin Feige, who's like a robot who just kind of uses formulas to make Marvel movies, you know, again, (laughs) commenting on fandom and the criticisms that have been thrown at the MCU, cool in a certain respect. It was almost like the existence of having to break the fourth wall and change the ending felt like an admission that the show was not all that good. So it's almost like the only way you could even get this ending was to have a not very good show. It's just really weird to me because obviously I didn't watch the show. I did do some reading about it when it first came out. I know there was a lot of criticism with test audiences, and I don't think that that played out very well with initial audiences because I know there were major complaints about the pilot episode, which people said was piecemeal. And I guess that's because the origins of She-Hulk were originally spread out through the series after people started watching it and were confused that there wasn't an actual origin piece. They sort of cut all those little origin fragments and somehow tried to paste them together in a pilot episode to set the tone of the show. My understanding is, correct me if you think I'm wrong, most fans were not happy with that. seemed like it set out on kind of a misstep to begin with. The three missteps to start were as I mentioned, they did not hire actual courtroom drama writers. No offense to the writers, they're doing the best they can, just they haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. So they're trying Mm -hmm. to probably figure it out on the fly, right? They probably haven't written many courtroom dramas, if if much at all. Yeah. The second thing it got knocked for right out of the gate and is troublesome. Again, this is mentioned when she's talking to Kevin. The CGI just is not up to par. Yeah, I've heard that Uh, over and and over. Unfortunately, that was something that Disney kind of promised when the shows were coming to Disney Plus was that these were going to be movie caliber level shows. We've seen shows like that that are graphics heavy, intense. Something like uh, Stranger Things is actually a good example. Mm -hmm. Has a great budget. They make great use use of it. And it looks fantastic. Like, I mean, if you can't, if you can knock anything about Stranger Things, it's usually not the effects. Oh, shoot. What was I saying? Oh, so the third thing. Third point. Which was what you were talking about right? Those three things together just set the series off on a a bad foot, I guess. I I think the bigger question that I come back to is this. Why are the Marvel shows such a miss? I mean, when we really think about it, right? Like going all the way back to what I would consider the first Marvel show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, I mean, it was successful. I think it ran for seven seasons. If you recall- Sounds successful to me. (laughs) Initially, when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was promised to fans, it was supposed to be a through line through the MCU films. Mm -hmm. And they were talking heavily like, hey, we're going to have major stars are going to make appearances and episodes. And this is going to help carry the momentum from film to film. Well, that never really happened. It kind of became this little bastard child of the MCU that Disney didn't really want to premise, though. I wish that had been Disney didn't really want to get rid of it. But at the same time, it wasn't really contributing to the MCU films and driving the story forward with foreshadowing and hints and things like that, as I think fans were expecting. Even in my impression of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was that it often early on and then later not so much at all but early on it dealt with the fallout from whatever was happening in the MCU yeah. almost nothing that happened in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was ever reflected in the overall MCU which could have been awesome had that they achieved that they came out with the Inhuman show which I think made it to like two episodes <laughs> is that it? I don't know that one I didn't I, watch I know it was a train wreck then There was a really successful formula that we saw when Marvel and Netflix teamed up to release the Netflix series, what went on to be The Defenders. 
Some of them were questionable, but for the most part, I mean, Daredevil is universally praised as a success. Yeah, I like um, Some of the other ones are well received by most fans. It seems like Iron Fist was the only one people had a real issue with. But I don't want to get into that. They got to <laughs> something that worked. So it's really weird that now when they're like, hey, we got Disney Plus, we're going to be making our own shows, our own content. They aren't quite able to crack the code for what successful television writing is. I'm just going to ask you outright. Do you think it's they're still trying to apply the quote unquote Marvel movie formula and stretching it out over an eight episode series? Do you think part of it is the fact that, again, as we sort of talked about last week, this is content that. They haven't really spent the time developing and it's all being rushed to get something out. Why do you think this isn't working? For a few of the series. So when you look at certain ones in particular, I think Falcon and Winter Soldier, Moon Knight, She-Hulk, and maybe even Hawkeye. They are, in essence, applying that Marvel movie formula to a story that A, starts and stops. You, You can't discount. They're not releasing these at once. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bit of a drag on the shows is that if you're writing for TV and you're going to release it weekly, you need to write it that way. I don't think they're quite writing it that way, right? They're trying to take this sort of movie formula and stretch these arcs out across eight, 10 episodes of a Marvel show. Now, that's the other problem is that the Marvel movie formula works good for about two hours. Yeah. And even then, it's pretty formulaic. Everybody knows it, particularly in all the Marvel origin stories, which is that often you have a character who comes into their powers or, or their place in the MCU and they're countered with a mirror evil sort of version. Marvel didn't that but they're just using that as their story template for a lot of the origin stories and that's that's true here to an extent i think the really ironic thing i find about this is the fact that comic books by nature are episodic right what's a better example of breaking a story up into episodic content than comic books where you get your 18 pages and you wait another month to read the next 18 pages and it's weird to me that this comic book company who has been successful creating a episodic content is struggling so much in the television medium. The way, the best way I can describe it is when you watch most of the shows that I named Falcon, the Winter Soldier, Moon Knight, Hawkeye, even She-Hulk, often it has the feeling that you can skip episodes. That really, if you want to know what happened, just watch like the pilot and the finale. A lot of what happens in the middle doesn't really matter all that. And so it doesn't amount to compelling television. Now, if you just like Marvel characters and you like Marvel shows, then of course the middle episodes still play great generally. You're going to enjoy yourself. But I mean, it's not like masterful television in that regard. It's You can't put these shows up against The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. The one I do have certain praise for, which was a little bit interesting, was WandaVision, which was the show they launched with. And WandaVision plays around with this whole sitcom concept. It was neat because it's Marvel's introduction to uh, MC shows. They were doing some really neat storytelling, unique elements that definitely made WandaVision feel right for the medium. It's also Don't ironic. follow the formula, right? Don't follow the formula. Yeah, and here, yeah. here they are doing that. I mean, it is ironic too that you point to WandaVision, and I think the other show that most people praise as success is Loki. To this point in the MCU, those are also the only shows to truly tie into the big picture MCU. I was going to say, I think Loki is probably the best at writing episodically, minus there's one episode 
episode in there that does feel a little, it drags a little bit. They just actually kind of like chase each other on a planet that's like getting blown up. For the most part, you're like, well, you probably missed that one. Just pick up the next one. It's like same thing. Generally for Loki overall, I felt they do a really good job with episodic storytelling. And then like you said, the thing with Loki is that it has major, major repercussions for how the MCU works at large, as well as the uh, quasi introduction to the big bad for the rest of the MCU. So it feels somewhat can't miss, right? Even if Loki wasn't good, which it is. I like Loki a lot. It might even be my favorite MCU show. It's can't miss. So you feel like, you know, even if it wasn't great, you still kind of got to check it out to understand. Yeah, a lot of the shows, they just, they feel like shows that exist maybe to introduce a new character. And that's why I was excited for She-Hulk in a weird way because I felt like by setting it with the attorney thing, it wasn't going to be formulaic and it would give kind of this courtroom drama dramedy you know maybe a little ally mcbeal or something i don't know <laughs> right okay. like okay have okay. some real fun with it and write some cool television that allows for these characters in the larger mcu to be discussed and, and they're breaking the fourth wall they're having fun with fandom i really i i think the concept was a lot of fun and, and i didn't hate watching the show i just i don't think it was executed in a way that will make it one of those memorable or even if it comes back for a season two like oh i gotta watch it yeah it just it wasn't executed that well so it's kind of a bummer but yeah I think the you know the number one takeaway from this discussion is I don't think Marvel has cracked television or particularly streaming television yet I don't know if this is just kind of the growing pains and we're watching as they learn they seem to know exactly what they were doing with the movies when phase one came out oh, yeah, and absolutely to the Avengers I don't know if like what they're missing is having these shows kind of like we talked with the MCU as a whole having these phases or these storylines kind of point somewhere yeah they feel a little aimless there's miss marvel and moon knight and i mean if i'm honest if you didn't watch them you didn't miss anything i think the other thing was again when we compare it to the netflix series the netflix series kind of made it clear very early on that this was building to something and if you recall marvel came out and initially said obviously they've now retracted that with you know matt murdoch appearing in spider-man but initially they said hey this is a separate kind of mcu this is like mcu you know 1b but it is building to the defenders so yeah. as a fan, we knew that we were invested in getting to see these shows because it was building to something. And I think part of the problem is it doesn't truly seem like any of the Disney Plus series are actually directly pertaining to the cinematic MCU. But at the same time, there is no event that they've pointed to where it looks like these shows are truly building to something. And I think yeah. part of the problem is kind of the same argument that fans were having with phase four is where is this going? You expect us to be investing all this time into stories and characters, and we don't even know what we're getting for it. I would say right now the MCU shows are an investment in characters. Other than Loki, they're not really building to anything. They are shows for character introductions or further in-depth analysis. So you look at WandaVision, right? But Moon Knight, Falcon getting promoted to Captain America, Miss Marvel, She-Hulk, those are all character introductions. The yeah. shows exist for us to get to know the characters and to that end, they're enjoyable. If you like Marvel, you're, gonna, you're definitely going to find the same vibe. You're going to find what you like. 
in Marvel. But yeah, it just doesn't feel like the shows themselves are pushing any boundaries here. I think they're actually a bit following the Marvel formula, maybe a little too much. Write them for television or streaming television. Either have them contribute at a larger level to the MCU or at least have them point somewhere so it feels like they're all building to something. Yeah, um, and seriously, Marvel, if you're going to make a show, the next series that comes out is going to be a you know MCU police drama. Maybe get some people who've worked on a procedural to helm the project. I think it's smart for them to be pushing their television footprint in a new direction. Why are you messing with mediums that you don't really have any understanding of, apparently? I mean, that's my two cents on it. It's not anything that I think is bad. I've enjoyed watching the Marvel shows. Like I said, they're they're mm. perfect. I would describe it as like they're perfectly fine. Perfectly uh, they're nothing. Fine. They're nothing that I would be like, hey, CP, you gotta watch this. Check it out. Like so they're I solid. To- like like C C effort. Yeah, they're like these get they're degrees. Good. Like they're good. If you like Marvel, they're fun. I don't have anything bad to say. I think She Hulk was kind of unique in that in that at the end by rewriting the ending and kind of positioning toxic fandom and fandom as the villain of the show they were kind of doing a, a wink wink to the all the wokeness criticism so, and just kind of having fun with it did but, you did you look into this at all is this an ending that they actually changed do you think in response to kind of the initial backlash that the show received when it first started did, did you look into that at all I did, and I did not see anything that this ending was magically pulled out of a hat when they got towards the end, and they're like, hey, screw it, let's just change it all. My understanding is that this was the ending from the beginning, unless something comes out and or I missed it. But no, I did actually look that up because I was curious, like, was this a direct response to the criticism of the show? But it did not appear that way. It appeared, like I said, that they probably had some meetings and, you know, let She-Hulk smash the fourth wall and, like, let's have fun with the fans. It was just very jarring. It was not my favorite. I think, did you see the tweet I put out? If you guys follow me at Big Kid D-Man. Oh, I uh, saw it. I usually saw it. when I watch new things, I tend to re- just do a quick 240 character review. Haven't done Rings of Power yet because I'm saving it for our conversation, but I did do She-Hulk and, you know, I had to give it about, I think I gave it a three or four out of 10. It just Yeah, that, that's why I don't know how you could say that that's like a, like a C effort. That's like a, that's like a no, solid I'm just saying the fail. show's overall. The show's overall. Oh. You know, I'm not going to go through and rate all of them. Maybe that's well, another well, Maybe you should. Maybe I would <laughs> yeah. like to know. Yeah, maybe I should. Wasn't wasn't that impressed. You know, the highlights of She-Hulk where Daredevil showing up was pretty cool. Wong shows up. They totally, like, nerf a couple characters. You know, it's whatever. Gotcha. So. Well. It, it was fun. Just didn't do it for me. Well, audience, if you happen to love She-Hulk, tweet at Big Kid D-Man, I don't really care because I'm not going to watch it. Just going to assume you're some idiot troll. So uh, I'll probably just ignore you anyway. Now, speaking of Disney Plus content, that does bring me to the next thing I want to talk about on this show. I think it's time for a little bit of movie remake time. All right. Love this segment. We take a look at two different movies and ask the very simple question, who did it better? In this case, we will be comparing the original Hocus Pocus from 1993 with the remake that just came out a few weeks ago, Hocus Pocus 2. The first one was directed by Kenny Ortega. The sequel was directed by Ann Fletcher. And D-Man, I know you watched it this past weekend. You just started off, man. What did you think? Sure. Yeah, I watched it, you know, getting in the mood for Halloween. We're approaching the holiday, end of October. The big takeaway for me for Hocus Pocus, and this is interesting because I've heard both good and bad things about it. Some people really liked it. Some people didn't like it at all. I actually really enjoyed it. 
I found oh it God, you to be would. fairly entertaining. It kind of gave off, you know, that old Disney Channel original movie vibe, even though I know the original in 1993 was actually theatrically released, but it did find its audience on Disney Channel. It was actually, I was reading something. Apparently it was pretty much a, a failure in the theatrical release. I think Disney said it lost them about $16 million. Wow. But it made that money back and actually produced a profit over the long run because every year they released it on Disney Channel and free form or ABC family before that it did have a resurgence in the home video market as a seasonal favorite was and not successful initially they got a sequel like 29 years late and that's kind of in vogue you know you look at Top Gun and some of mm -hmm. these movies you know they're rehashing some old properties and bringing them back for the streaming services and Top Gun in the theater wow Hocus Pocus let me tell you this you don't need to go see it in the theater perfectly suitable for streaming on Disney Plus well done I think that's a timely release for the Halloween season capturing some of that nostalgia for the original and then allowing audiences who grew up, which is audiences our age with the original Hocus Pocus to watch the new one and enjoy it, share it with the next generation. True. I thought the Sanderson sisters aged shockingly well. They looked great. They were <laughs> almost exactly like I remembered them. Very funny still. They had that kind of fiery wit. You can clearly tell they're relishing the roles, the actors. They're having mm -hmm. fun. And that's contagious, I think. I thought the actors were having fun and therefore, you know, it's like we can have permission to not take this ultra, ultra seriously and still have a good time. Definitely Family Fair. It's a movie that you can put on with the whole family. I guess the way I would describe it is like, I think a little kid would really like it. I think a teenager might claim that they don't like it, but secretly still like kids movies and probably did like it. And parents that love the original and sat through it probably had a good time. Other than that, I, I thought they did some cool things. Like it's based basically derivative of the original story. The Sanderson sisters come back on Halloween. They got to capture somebody by midnight or they get destroyed. Those are the stakes. They are technically still the villains. A lot of the jokes and, and stuff, they just kind of reposition some of the, the stuff from the first one and update it for the times. And I thought that was fine. Mm -hmm. I found it totally delightful. I enjoyed it. Just, I was happy watching it. <laughs> I don't know. What about you? Wow. Um, okay. Well, to rain all over that parade, I hated it. Hated everything about the movie. First of all, if we're going to make a remake of a movie that's almost 30 years old, why don't we just wait a full 30 years to remake <laughs> the movie? Like 29 years? Like that's just such an obscure number. Was not a fan of that. I thought it was stupid. I'm going to start there. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh. I think that my big issue was it didn't really serve a purpose. And I know every time we talk about this segment on our show, I always come to what's the purpose of this? There was no storyline left untangled in the first to really pull on. In the initial story, right, there is the candle. And if it is lit by a virgin, they will return from the grave on all, you know, if it's lit on Halloween night, they will return night? from yeah. the grave. And you're like, awesome. What happens in the story? Someone who does not believe in the local legend like everyone else in the town the new guy comes to town he lights the candle releasing the Sanderson sisters and he himself has to not undo what he did but more importantly undo it to save his sister yeah I'm like boom solid story stakes. wraps up the stakes are clear the motivations are clear this one they come back yet spoiler alert the girls who end up releasing them are tricked into releasing them even though there's never any indication that based on magic they should be returning the whole justification for the rebirth of the Sanderson sisters is weird to begin with yeah it's the guy from the magic shop tricked them correct yeah and he's yeah just kind he of gave him the candle for her birthday and he's like oh hey and then later he's like oh yeah I knew that was 
happened. I was um, there in 1993 and I wanted to see. I don't I don't remember seeing that kid trick or treating though, so I don't think he was actually there. Um, I think he was. Bigger issue though is <laughs> in the first one, the Sanderson sisters are evil. They are stealing children, they are feasting on their souls to stay young and beautiful forever. I All put right, that, I do, that in the solid a, bad guy category. That is a true criticism, I think. I have to agree with that in this one. They are still the villains, but they're definitely not as sinister, right? In fact, the beginning scene of the movie, we're almost it's almost trying to we're almost supposed to feel sorry for them in the sense that they are ousted from their town in Salem and forced to live in the woods and how they discover witchcraft is because the town people just don't really seem to like them. Is Which, it wrong that I think it'd be cool to live in the woods? No, I mean, <laughs> dude, you grew up in the Midwest. We spent most of our childhood in the woods. I, I don't know. I just think that'd be pretty sweet. I don't know. Maybe I would hate it, but it kind of sounds enticing. There's magic. Or that. What was up with that <laughs> smoke show witch that showed up in the beginning? I don't know. I was you like, know, wow. They The only really, the only thing was was that scene. And then at the very end, this, this witch transformed into a crow. Yep. And then she shows up at the end and like swoops down. Weird. I don't know. Off topic now. But for me... <laughs> I'm just like, you know, the Sanderson sisters are eating kids' souls. Why are we trying to position them as not the villains or not such evil villains? I mean, at the end of the film, they're almost happy because the most important to them is their sisterhood and getting to be together. And I, I just don't like the sympathetic approach that we take. I, I got to say it again, just in case you haven't been listening to me for the fast five minutes. They eat children's souls. That's like one of the most heinous things I can think of. They're not just eating souls, they're kids' souls. So like they're child murdering, molesting soul leaders. Why? Why? I don't get it. I, my guess is, if I could just throw it out there, is that I think over the years, people have sort of fallen in love with the characters. My guess is Disney simply just wanted to position them as as the characters that you can wear their costumes and everything. You know, well, not I mean, that people dress up as Freddy and Jason. And I was going to say, there's a big following of Freddy Krueger and lots of people love his movies and love the character. But again, at the end of the day, he's a child murderer. Like, we really should walk a very cautious line when we're trying to celebrate these characters, even though there's a fandom about them. He's an asshole, and they are too. The other thing I did not care for in the movie is the whole scene on the trolley with the football jock. Essentially, it's just a PSA about how if you comment on people- Oh, like who bullying? Are, yeah, it's like, that's a form of bullying. When you talk about people and say that they're weird, you're really bullying them. And I was like, do we have to be that on the nose? I mean, you know I hate on the nose propaganda stuff. I'm like, I think that there could have been a more creative way to implement the theme of bullying and friendship than just like write it out in a blatant yeah, piece it's like of stopping, Sesame Street dialogue. I was going to say, it's like stopping midway through with like an in-movie PSA. Make sure you don't bully people here. Oh, all right. Like, where did that come from? And now back to your story. Yeah, right? I was just like, <laughs> oh, seriously? That's my thoughts on the film. Yeah, I, I will say, I do think them being a little bit more sinister in the first one gives it a bit of an edge. I also think there's something about the underdog story with the first one that's kind of charming in that it didn't do well in the theaters, but built up a following over decades, getting Disney Channel and now Disney Plus Play. It's kind of cool that Pocus Pocus is somewhat of a holiday movie. People watch it every year. That's kind of cool. But who knows? Also- Maybe 
the second one will join the ranks, right? Maybe people will rewatch it. One of the things I loved. Maybe about the it first just one, it's going to take you a decade, CP, and you'll be you'll love the second. Two or three at this point. <laughs> Twenty nine years exactly. The other thing I loved about the first one, and we talked about it last week. I love the trick or treating aspect. I love the holiday party aspect. It does a great job of kind of celebrating all the things that are quintessential Halloween. This one does it to some extent, but yeah, I don't think it, it does it quite as well, just in the sense that I don't think every town in, like every town in America has Halloween parties, has trick-or-treating. Not every town in America has Sanderson sister drag shows and giant carnivals. So yeah. for me, it just wasn't quite as anywhere USA as the first one is, where you're like, if you were a kid in the 90s and early 2000s, you could relate to the depiction of Halloween in the first movie. Okay, I get that. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense too, because it was on your list about favorite trick-or-treating scenes. So everything's adding up. <laughs> <laughs> Let me throw it over to you, Ben. I think we know where you stand, but which one did it better? Now, in my opinion, the first, the original, is the best. And part of that is I hate change, but part of that is I just really hate crappy remakes that don't need to be made. So I'm going to say the original 1993 Hocus Pocus is the better of the two. D-Man? Well, we are going to disagree today because I'm going to go with Hocus Pocus too. I actually really enjoyed it. I found it to be fun, entertaining, definitely a movie you're going to watch around Halloween and no other time of the year. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, it was a cool update. Well, the motive may just be tapping into nostalgia. I think if you're here for that, then it was pretty cool. Fair I'm going to go with number two, yeah. Audience, again, you got to let us know. Hocus Pocus 1, Hocus Pocus 2. You decide which one you think is better. I'm hoping that you're going to agree that I'm right and D-Man's wrong. But if uh, if that's not the case, then, well, just keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> Last thing, obviously, this is still October. I thought it would be fun to do something slightly spooky oh, for this right. next episode. So I wanted to tell you, I did a little bit of digging. Obviously, if you are a film buff, which I know you are, which you know I am, which obviously most of our audience is, you may have heard the urban legends of cursed films. These are the movies okay. that such heinous things happen during production that everyone believes that the only excuse is an outright curse. So okay. <laughs> as October, I thought it would be fun to talk about a few of the, uh, well, most heinous ones. That sounds really cool, actually. I am not even sure what these are. So I'm... I did some digging. So I put together a list of a few. I'm going to throw it out. And if you know why it's cursed, tell me. Okay. If you don't, well, then I will tell you why. They say it's a curse. So the first one, right. The Wizard of Oz from 1939. I think I do know this one. This is the one where technically, I believe you can see a guy hanging. He committed suicide on set. Is that why it's cursed? That is an urban legend, but they claim that that is in fact one of the storks on the set. At oh, that time. so not that's not true. They say that that's not true, but they do believe the film is cursed because the original actor cast as the Tin Man had to be recast after he had an allergic reaction to the aluminum makeup he was wearing. Apparently he had to be rushed to the hospital and had to bring in someone because he almost died. During the scene where the Wicked Witch is supposed to disappear in a plume of smoke, the trapdoor actually malfunctioned. She actually caught fire and got second degree burns. Oh my God, that's crazy. I did not know that. Her stunt double was sent to the hospital when the prop bloom that she was flying on exploded. What Two were they doing? They just throwing 
throwing <laughs> explosives on these things? Like, what is and going two on? actors who played the flying monkeys actually fell when their wires broke. There was a little bit and of drama going on on the They set. lived, though, right? Yeah, they lived. Apparently, they were injured. Well, that doesn't sound like a anxiety-free set. It's kind yeah, of right? what's going to happen today. <laughs> kind of crazy. Next film, The Crow from 1994. This I know, too. Malfunctioning prop gun. Killed the lead. Exactly. What's ironic about it is it's a movie about a musician who returns from the dead to take revenge on the killers who killed his fiance. Yes, this is Brandon Lee's last movie where he was shot on set. And I was actually reading about it. And it was actually very crazy. They actually sent home the firearms supervisor earlier in the day. And they're like, we got everything. It's not a problem. And it turns out that one of the blanks had been lodged in the barrel of the gun. So when they actually put in new powder, it ended up turning that into a projectile and that's what killed. Holy cow. I have heard of that story. Shout out to my old roommate, Julian. I know he used to watch that movie all the time. So when we were college roommates, it was on. Cool movie. Tragic ending. That sounds like, I don't know if it's a curse. That is a horrible mistake though. Oh yeah. The next one, a little movie called Rebel Without a Cause from 1955. Ooh, I do not know why this would be cursed. Check this out. The reason why they say it's cursed. James Dean was injured twice during the production of the film. One time he broke his hand. One time he was actually stabbed with a knife. What? <laughs> yeah. He then died in the fatal car accident, which took his life weeks before the premiere of the film in 1955. Why that would have been enough tragedy in its own right. In 1976, Sal Mineo was murdered outside his Los Angeles apartment. And then in 1981, Natalie Wood drowned off the coast of Catalina curse. Island. That is a curse. Those last two seem a little too far removed to me to actually be cursed set. But James if you Dean... were there, you're cursed. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> this one is a movie that I, you know, I love and I know you love The Dark Knight from 2008. Have you heard about the curses involved with this one? There is a curse with The Dark Knight. Now, obviously, we all know about Heath Ledger. I don't know if this has anything to do with him. But other than that, I do not know about any curses with The Dark Knight. Yes, Heath Ledger is part of it, right? He died before the release of the film from an accidental drug overdose. They do attribute the film to, unfortunately, have inspired the movie theater massacre in Aurora, Colorado in 2012. So that's horrible. Wow. But on and top that was, of that, was that the premiere of Dark Knight Rises? But he dressed like the Joker from The Dark Knight. Morgan Freeman was in a severe car accident in 2008, right after filming wrapped. While he survived, <laughs> uh, he was involved in the car accident while his mistress was riding in the car with him. So I Ooh. can't imagine imagine his wife was too psyched about that. One of the special effects technicians. Is that karma or a curse? I don't know. <laughs> and then one of the special effect technicians, Conway Wilcliffe, he died on set when the camera truck actually crashed into a tree. Oh, that was wild filming? Yeah. Someone died on the set of Dark Knight? Wow. There very well may be a curse for that one. I'll buy that. A lot of tragedy surrounding that movie, especially with the theater shooting. That is wild. So How about this? Terrible. Poltergeist from 1982. Have you heard any Ooh, about Absolutely. I've heard about the curses here. A lot of the people who were on the set ended up being injured or part of tragedies themselves. Yes, I have heard of Poltergeist. There were injuries. The act actresses, Dominique Dune, she was murdered by an ex-boyfriend in 1982, a few days after her 23rd birthday, and Heather O'Rourke died from an undiagnosed intestinal disease in 88. The reason why everybody thinks this is cursed, though, is because supposedly real skeleton corpses were used in the infamous swimming pool scene. And you'd think in a movie called Poltergeist about how you do that? built on a cemetery, you would know better than to use real corpses in a movie. But hey, misstep by Spielberg, I guess. I can't even believe that. I don't even think if I was getting paid the buku bucks as an actor, I'd want to get into a swimming pool with real skeletons. Tempting Satan. Yeah, right? <laughs> 
You probably have heard of this one, Rosemary's Baby from 1968. I don't know if I have. Although this movie just suggests curse. Totally. So <laughs> none of this happened supposedly during the shooting. This all happened after it. After the film, the producer, William Castle, needed emergency surgery for gall stones. Composer Christoph Pometa actually suffered a traumatic brain injury, fell into a coma, ended up dying from it. The wow. biggest sign of the curse, and we all know this, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family oh, yeah, in 1969. Yeah. She starred in the film, her husband directed the film, and their unborn child was also a casualty of the Manson family murders. So, man, that is insane. This next film is a cursed film, The Exorcist from 78. I want to say I heard about this. There is a curse that follows this film. Yeah. The New York City set of The Exorcist burned down during filming in 72. The whole thing just up in smoke burned down. Sounds hellish. Nine people involved with a movie died by the time production wrapped. Yeah, which, that's crazy. That's, that's insane. That's I mean, not normal. Nine people is like a lot of people. But a movie called The Exorcist, I mean, come on, we knew that you were in, in for trouble to begin with. When's the last time you watched that movie? Very, very, very long time ago. I saw it, I want to say, a year or two ago during the pandemic, and it is just as creepy as you remember it. Oh no, it's totally, totally horrifying. It's not, you know, some of those movies you like grow up and then you watch them and you're like, oh yeah, it's not as scary as I remember. Now that I, A, know it's just a movie, because yeah, when I saw yeah, it when yeah. I was a kid, like, not oh not the case with that one. Not the case. Yeah, with you that still one. watch it and you're like, oh, this is yeah. Okay, so this is a film I've never heard of, and I would consider this actually maybe one of the worst curses. It's The Conqueror from 1956. Haven't seen it too because I don't <laughs> it was a get cursed. Box office bomb. It was a film starring John Wayne, an epic about Genghis Khan. Oh, I gotta um, ask. Oh my God, is that when is that when he went Genghis Khan? Yeah, that was when he went Genghis oh, Khan. Oh, I've so, seen the clips of that. The, and, the yeah. reason why. <laughs> they say that this film was cursed is it was filmed in Snow Canyon, Utah, which is downwind from Yucca Flats, Nevada, which is a site where 11 atomic bombs were tested during the 40s and the 50s. The filmmakers knew about this during shooting, but the crazy thing is by 1980, 91 members of the cast and crew had gotten cancer, including John Wayne and director Dick Powell. I would say that is an absolute definitive curse from working on that movie. I will never watch that movie. I don't need any TV radiation hitting me. Those TV waves, whatever, microwaves, I don't know. I don't need it. it sounds like this permeating out of people's screens. So I... <laughs> So the last one I'm going to bring up, and I think this is actually the creepiest. And so I totally believe that this film was cursed as well. The okay. Omen from 1976. Did you ever watch that one? It was the I the have Donner not movie. seen the original one. No. Now I might. You should. Yeah, well, this one I might actually Or maybe watch. you should not. So check this out. Reasons why people say that the omen was cursed. Gregory Peck's plane was struck by lightning on his flight to London. That's really unlikely. <laughs> our, our executive producer, Mark's Newfield's plane was struck by lightning when he was flying to LA weeks later. That's shockingly unlikely. When Newfield and his wife were staying in London during filming, their hotel was hit with a terrorist bombing. Wow. I don't know. Uh, when was this film? 70s? 76. That happened today. I, that might be more likely. But back in the 70s, I don't know. Then the animal trainer also died, did the scene, the zoo scene with the baboons. The very next day, he was mauled by a tiger. That's just, how does that happen? Creepiest one is this, though. So check this out. Two months after the film premiered, which was June 6, 1976, gotcha. the special effects artist, John Richardson, he was driving in the Netherlands with his assistant, Liz Moore. They got into a car accident. He survived, but she was 
was decapitated. And oh, the freakiest thing about is this awful. is on the highway where this happened, there was a sign beside the accident and it read Omen instead of Omen, which is the movie is spelled the Omen, O-M-E-N. This is for the city of Omen, which is O-M-M-E-N, 66.6 kilometers. Yeah, that's a curse. That's a yeah. curse. That's I a mean, total curse. If you don't believe in curses, there's no way you can make that up. Curse. Anyway, just thought that might be a little spooky twist on what we normally talk about, you know, throwing out some movie facts. So. Well, listeners, if you enjoyed that kind of unique segment, let us know. But if you also have any uh, stories from your own sets or, for that matter, any stories that we did not bring up here, we'd love to hear them. I think we still got one more week left with some Halloween commentary. So that'd be pretty cool if you guys share some, some awesome stories and behind the scenes stuff. That actually does it, though. So we want to thank all of you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to uh, subscribe and you can find all the information for our show at filmmakerscompass.com where all of our social media links are. And you can find me individually. I'm at Big Kid D-Man. You can find me. I'm at NDCal5. We'll be sure to keep the conversations going throughout the week and we look forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Filmmakers Compass. Keep watching movies. See you next week.